Welcome to the Great American Novel Podcast. I'm Kirk Kernut. And I'm Scott Yarbrough. And on today's episode, which is episode 24, we are going to discuss a book that I think has a wonderfully durable cult reputation by a writer who has a fascinating career. We're going to do 1970s Play It As It Lays by Joan Didion. And I will say right off the bat, Scott, that I am a total 1,000% 1970s guy. So this book speaks to me a lot. Give me stagflation. Give <laughs> me ennui. Give me Richard Nixon. Give me uh, Updike and Roth and uh, all of those guys, and I am perfectly happy. Three's Company, the theme to SWAT playing on the popular radio stations. Well, I do love the theme to SWAT. I might take a pass <laughs> on Three's Company. Yeah. I was never, never a big fan of uh, some of that television. Yeah, a lot of it's pretty limited, and uh, even Three's Company, I think you could also call it three plot lines repeated. <laughs> you know, I will say I saw I saw a meme the other day that said that Mrs. Roper was forty-seven, and I got terribly depressed. So uh, wow. there is there is that to think about. That's like that thing that in an interview that Ken Burns talked about being older than Ernest Hemingway was when Hemingway died, and how much younger yeah. Ken Burns looks. Than Hemingway, how much more kind of fresh and astute he seems, and it makes you think about what Hemingway had done to himself, and plus all the injuries he had had, and his mental right. issues, and drinking, and all that. So we're not out of the ballpark talking about Hemingway because if there is a writer who is a stylistic descendant of Hemingway, it is Joan Didion, and uh, who claimed him as a major influence, and. Not to get sort of uh, strung up on gender, but it is one of the rare writers, I think, female writers who sort of claims Hemingway. So that's a it's an interesting connection there. You know, she's she's enough of an original that she doesn't really care what other people think and goes her own way. So when it becomes the I don't know the the trend or the fashion in the seventies to to trash Hemingway for having outdated points of view or ways of doing things, uh, especially when it comes to his relationships with women or his character's relationships with women. Didion didn't really care what other people thought. It's much like she's got a great essay about John Wayne and how much she loved John Wayne movies. Yeah. Again, not the fashion by the 70s, but she yeah. didn't really care. Well, and she also has an essay in the White Album that is a pretty brutal critique of seven, second wave feminism. So even though she was a uh, very notable literary figure. She was not, I think, on the front lines with Gloria Steinem and other folks like that and pushing for a redefinition of women's roles. But that's all stuff we can get into. The only thing I would say is, you know, it's very, very difficult to talk about a Joan Didion book without talking about Joan Didion. And maybe another way that she was Hemingway-esque is she was a celebrity for the bulk of her literary career. And uh, I think that makes it, in, in her fiction in particular, I think it makes it difficult to judge it in some ways, whether it works as narrative uh, apart from the author's uh, celebrity. So with that said, we will come back to that as well in a minute. But uh, Scott, do you want to do a quick overview of Play It As It Lays? Here are some typical questions the doctors here asked me. I'm to answer yes or no. Do I think a large number of people are guilty of bad sexual conduct? 
Do I believe my sins are unpardonable? Have I been disappointed in love? How could I answer? How could it apply? I'll tell you what I do. I try to live in the now. I watch hummingbirds. I go for a walk during visiting hours. I see no one I used to know. <laughs> But then, I'm not just crazy about a lot of people. I used to ask questions. And I got the answer. Well, I think you've just raised a pretty good question, which is how much of a Ramana Clay is it? And how much is it is it about things she knew about or went through? Or how much of it is purely fiction? And the record seems to go pretty drastically back and forth, depending where you look or yeah. whom you ask about that. It's her second novel. The first one came out in 1963. She's mostly, before this book, doing nonfiction, short journalistic pieces. She grew up a bit of an army brat as a uh, young girl. Her parents finally settled in Sacramento. And so she goes to uh, Berkeley University and upon graduating, immediately lands a good job at Vogue, where she's very successful and stays there till 1964, at which point she marries a writer who had an older brother who was very involved in the Hollywood scene. And this writer, she marries from Time magazine, John Gregory Dunn. They decide to move together to maybe try and break into not necessarily the Hollywood movie scene, but the Hollywood journalism scene. And, you know, there's this whole infrastructure that goes with the film business. I mean, there's reasons why we have so many things centered around out in Los Angeles. And a lot of them are simply because there's so much money and so much to be done with films and actors that it just has a kind of gravitational pull, like a, like a sun, or if you want to be negative, a black hole that sucks everything toward it in a way. They live uh, over 20 years in that area, including eight years in Malibu. So you think of the giant beach houses with the multiple stories of glass fronting on the ocean and the stairs down. I mean, that's the image you have, how accurate that is. I'm not sure. <laughs> She gets involved in what, and we'll talk about this as we get to it, what comes to be known as new journalism and has a collection of her essays that she'd published in various magazines come out in 68, slouching toward Bethlehem that really more than anything else she had done up to this point made her a writing celebrity. And it was a very big deal, and which, I, which I find fascinating because it's very rare that you can name anyone whose book of essays makes them a literary celebrity other than people like me and you. <laughs> But for the public and for people to have her on television shows. Now, people have cynically said, and it's probably worth noting, and you and I maybe can talk about this later, it's not hurt by the fact she's very good looking. Yes. And she's very young and she's she's hitting all these things. So she's in her early 30s when Slashing Towards Bethlehem comes out. Later, this book comes out and there's another novel. And then her other kind of uh, the three big ones are this novel, Play As It Lays, Slashing Towards Bethlehem. And then in 1979, The White Album, which is another great collection of nonfiction. When it's all said and done, if we don't count greatest hits and compilations, though, she published five novels and 12 books of nonfiction in, in her life. And she died again, just a, a couple of years ago. At the age of 87. Yeah. An icon. 
very interesting career. As you say, it's kind of bookended. You have this burst of fame with uh, journalism there. I, I think by any measure, one of the difficulties of judging play it as it lays is, is it is overshadowed by Slouching Toward Bethlehem and yeah. the White Album. Slouching Toward Bethlehem is, uh, I would argue that it pretty much ended any sort of romanticization of the hippie movement when it came out in the fall of 1967. It really exposes sort of the moral drift. And at the end of the day, Joan Didion is a moralist. She was absolutely comfortable with saying that. She was not a decadent. She did believe that there were certain guidelines that were evaporating. And the White Album itself, we'll come back to this because uh, my whole theory about this novel is she probably should have written the White Album as this novel. And it gets a little, I think it it was just interesting case of maybe bad timing with this novel. As great as it is, I think it's inevitable that people read this book. And if they know about the White Album, they can't be a little let down by the events of 1969 and 1970 in Los Angeles. And then we have this later period where beginning in 2005 up to her death, she becomes uh, a really amazing third act of fame, in some ways maybe more famous than she was originally as a memoirist, coming out with two books exploring the passing of uh, her two family members. First, her husband, whom she had been married to almost 40 years when he suddenly died in 2003, and she wrote a book in 88 days called uh, The Year of Magical Thinking. And shortly after that book was out and she was on the publicity tour, her daughter, who was 39 years old, uh, Quitana Dunn, who had suffered pretty much throughout her life with a series of ailments, and that ties into Play It As It Lays too, passed away unexpectedly, and that led to the book Blue Nights in 2011. Right. So Didion became, in her 70s, a kind of uh, second burst of rock star fame, where she was really heralded as a writer's writer. There is a documentary, The Center Cannot Hold, that it was uh, done by her nephew, the son of Dominic Dunn, uh, John Gregory Dunn's brother. Fascinating interview, but it really deals a lot with her iconicity yeah. as someone who made writing look cool. Yeah. I personally think her middle period from 1980 to 2005 is a little overlooked. She did uh, some interesting stuff about politics in there. I am in particular a, a fan of her novel, Democracy, from 1984, but also her essay collection, Salvador, from 1983. I think that section of time gets a little overlooked because uh, she was not necessarily as, I guess, uh, sort of glamorous in the sense of the right. themes that she was taking on, did not really ride the zeitgeist as much. You know, I think there's a couple of interesting things that you've already brought up. One is, in the middle of all the crazy turmoil of L.A. and San Francisco and California in the end of the 60s, she's involved in a relationship that lasts, survives all that and lasts until he dies again after they've had this this marriage that's lasted over um, uh, 40-something years. and. Yeah. And it almost destroys her. And then her daughter's death practically does it. She's astounded, as she says in that second memoir, that she does survive. Yeah. And I think we don't want to glamorize that marriage. It was a very interesting no. marriage. It yeah. was a bit, you know, they were collaborators on a lot of film projects. But I think, and this is something that may only 
beyond the horizon of coming out. I think it was probably a very difficult marriage. By any measure, John Gregory Dunn uh, had alcohol issues. Right. And I think he also had a lot of anger issues. And at various points, that marriage floundered. And part of this book is inspired by a period of time in which they were on the verge right. of splitting up. So I guess let's talk a little bit about what the book is about specifically. It's often, I think, a little deceptively categorized as a as a Hollywood novel because we are dealing with a, a model slash actress we are dealing with filmmakers, but it's also to remember that it's also a Las Vegas novel. Yeah. And in many ways, it's a novel about the drift between those two very chimerical cities and sort of the absence of any sort of grounding or roots. So when we try to summarize this novel, it's also a little difficult because the basic theme, I think, is a sort of nihilism, a sort of... Uh, again, a moral drift, an inability of people to find positive ways to exert agency and control over their lives. Right. We essentially have a novel about a early 30s model who becomes famous and an actress. Her name is Mariah Wyeth, and she is married to a filmmaker who is, and they're both sort of having affairs, living a decadent Hollywood life. Right. And neither is happy. Nobody in this novel is happy. I right. Mean, when Scott finished the book, he emailed me and said, well, I've finished this cheery book. So, <laughs> but I think we have to remember 1970 was not a particularly uh, ebullient year itself. Yeah. A lot of this novel is very episodic. It is 200 plus pages long with nearly 100 chapters. And, and most chapters probably average between three and seven pages. Yeah. This is a vignette-style book. Right. I think for people our age, it's maybe difficult to come to play it as a lays without us thinking about Brett Easton Ellis's Less Than Zero. Oh, absolutely. It's and, very much that, and for that matter, Bright Lights, Big City by yeah. McInerney, which we talked about an episode or two back as well. Yeah. Who also followed this vignette approach. Yeah, both of those books are Didion Pastiches, very much inferior books, I would say. Yeah. But there is a tendency, I think, to want to maybe glamorize a little bit the ennui and the despair in this book. There's really not a whole lot of a plot per se. Right. We have a very difficult to take abortion scene. Important to remember that this book was published uh, three years before Roe versus Wade. Right. So we are talking about an illegal abortion. And it ends with a suicide and some might say an assisted suicide. We have a character named BZ who is a not by choice closeted gay man. His mother pays his wife to stay with him as right. a beard. And in the end, he chooses to overdose with Mariah beside him, and she does not stop him. She yeah. holds him. She's kind of a little loopy herself and sort of passes out and wakes up and realizes he's dead. But the question lingers about the end of this book. Is her allowing BZ to take his own life a sort of reflection of her passivity or immobility to move, or is it the most active thing that she does in this book. Or is she just so burned out that it just doesn't yeah. register, which I think is kind of somewhere between those two sides as well. I think it's very telling that in a book about malaise that the final two words are, why not? Yeah. 
I think maybe we should start by talking about the literary movement she participates in right before she writes this novel. Okay. Which is new journalism. Sure. New journalism is long-form journalism that's being written up in a lot of initially countercultural journals, uh, really a lot of the rock magazine journals. So uh, you see it in, in Rolling Stone, but it also starts showing up in like Playboy and in Esquire and other places. And so you have three or four different writers who become known. And one of these, uh, probably the best writer of them from a journalistic standpoint would be Tom Wolfe. Well, actually, I'd say John Didion, but of the other ones, Tom Wolfe, who would eventually go on to write the right stuff about the uh, Mercury and then eventually Apollo astronauts and who also did his uh, electric Kool-Aid acid test about all these merry pranksters following Ken Kesey and all these people around to on a series of kind of drug forays and following uh, the Grateful Dead and other groups uh, across the the West. We also have Ken Kesey's writings, and then eventually, of course, he'll write One Flew Over to Cuckoo's Nest. And you probably, the other missing piece of this will be how Norman Mailer converts over, influenced by it, and writes probably far better books in nonfiction than he ever wrote yeah. in fiction, although some people make some arguments for some of those early novels. And so Didion didn't really write, in the early days, any book-length studies in the way that Tom Wolfe did. But the whole idea of new journalism, of stringing together vignettes, of allowing the journalists... To, oh, Hunter S. Thompson's the other one I'm missing here. Mm -hmm. Very much a Las Vegas scribe himself. Absolutely. So the journalist is part of the story. The journalist lets you know that they know what's going on. They'll report stuff that had been previously censored, cut out. It's very much narrative-based. It uses metaphor and symbols and simile and all that. And so all that kind of collectively becomes new journalism. And so the vignette and portraying of little scenes that are almost like a string of Christmas lights leading to a story, I think is influenced by that new journalistic approach she had had in her essays, where again, they're very often composed of a handful of vignettes. But in those cases, she can just, from a journalistic author write here's what i'm talking about and just say what she means in this book she starts to kind of do that with the first person narrative gets stymied immediately and so we had this very weird approach where there's a couple of i thought pretty good chapters from first person mm -hmm. and then we jump to 90 percent of the rest of the book after that is third person other than yeah. a few little paragraphs hither and yon they're in first person yeah we get opening chapters from mariah from her friend Helene, and then right. from uh, Mar and Mariah's husband, husband Carter. Yeah. And each of those sort of sets us up to think that we're going to have a novel like As I Lay Dying, using that sort of rotating cast of characters. Right. I think what happened there is Didion began writing the book and then realized that she couldn't sustain all those voices and went to kind of traditional free and direct discourse right. where she is telling the story through the perspective of, uh, of Mariah. But it does give the opening of it a kind of off-kilter feeling that, in a weird way, it kind of reminds me of the ending of Monty Hellman's Tulane Blacktop. Do huh. you remember that movie? I remember talking about that movie. I don't remember the ending that clearly, though. The movie just ends with like the film burning up in the projector. Right. It's like, you remember, it just kind of splotches out. 
So it's almost like the reverse of that here. And I think that was sort of indicative of the malaise, maybe. There yeah. was a sense in this time that if you're an artist, that you don't hide your tools or your materials or devices, and that not everything has to be balanced and yeah. sort of built out architecturally, kind of the Henry James house of fiction sort of thing. And it yeah. ca- it catches it catches kind of the mood or the feeling, I think, of the era where things just don't seem to fit together. Things fall apart. So here's my big theory about this novel. Okay. Didion comes out with Slouching Toward Bethlehem, which creates this celebrity tour for her, very much epitomized by a famous photo of her by Julian Wasser that Time Magazine commissioned in 1968 or 69. And I I don't think we can think of Mariah driving through the desert in her Corvette without thinking of that picture of very cool, glamorous Joan Didion, almost kind of hippie Joan Didion smoking a cigarette in front of her Daytona yellow Corvette, which is an interesting car because I don't know if you ever had much experience with Corvettes, Scott, but I I almost lost an aunt in a Corvette in the 70s. They were about the crappiest car you could ever find. They looked great. They were cool. But remember, they were made of fiberglass. Yeah. So the minute they got hit, they just basically fell apart. So maybe the Corvette is a great metaphor for this novel. They're prone to flip, as I recall, as well. Yes, yes. Uh, We almost lost Mark Hamill to to one, I think. Yep. And his face was irrevocably changed after that, too. Ironically, Right after he starred in the movie Corvette Summer, which Corvette uh, Summer yeah. is a terrible, nineteen. I'm having awful movie. Yeah, PTSD from remembering that movie yeah. out of the blue. So June Didion starts writing this second novel of hers in 1968 and 1969, and in the middle, before she finishes writing it, just about she's finishing writing it, the events of August 1969 happen. And we're speaking, of course, of the Charles Manson murders, most famously of Sharon Tate, the film actress. I I find it very difficult to read this novel and think of the relationship between Mariah and Carter without thinking of the absolutely abusive marriage that Sharon Tate was in with Roman Polanski. Polanski. Especially when you read some of the things that he did to her and terms of not wanting to have the child that was eventually killed when that uh, when the Mansonite folks raided Cielo Drive. I think that unfortunately, because nine years later she would produce the quintessential essay about the Manson murders, the White huh. Album, right, where she basically talks about the experience of living through August 1969. And stitching it together with a lot of vignettes of the late 1960s, very much in the form of this novel, and coming to the understanding that she just did not have a way of processing. Yeah. It's almost impossible for me to read Play It As It Lays and not wish that she had taken this book back and rewritten the quintessential novel of living through the Manson years in 1970. You know, the example I think of, and it's brought to mind because you mentioned it earlier. So when you brought up she's 
influenced by and channeling Hemingway in certain ways. I'm sure a lot of people are like, what are you talking about? Well, one of the things Didion did is took, is it Men Without Women, the collection? Mm-hmm. or and, yep. and I think also Sun Also Rises and retyped the novels in their entirety to get a sense, the novel and the book of stories to get a sense for the rhythm and his approaches to his more minimalist iceberg style fiction. And so when we think about Hemingway, that first draft of his book about his being blown up in World War I experiences and his falling in love with Agnes von Kurowski, who's going to jilt him later, his start on that book is among the papers lost by his his wife Hadley uh, when she's going to visit him in Switzerland. And he says, bring me all the, the book I'm working on. She says, okay, and gets all the stories except for the couple out in the mail and the one in the back of the drawers. And, of course, famously, the suitcase or valise full of all Hemingway's writing right. is, is stolen. And it is funny how many writers, although we all, if we put ourselves in his perspective, everyone would have an amazing meltdown. This is back before you had it backed up on the cloud or on jump drives or whatever. Even so, uh, so many people said, you know, it's probably helped him a lot to lose the juvenilia. And so he actually doesn't publish his book about his experiences until 11 years after the fact. Yeah. And so for her, she's writing about some of her experiences, although greatly filtered through the prism of fiction a year or two after the facts. Right. And, Maybe that's exactly what would have happened if she had held off on this book and incorporated this and a lot of what she does in the White Album into a novel at that time. It, yeah. it may have been that 10 years of more time to you know ruminate and think about and, and put it in perspective that seems to help writers so much. I think you're absolutely right. I guess my feeling is it's it's difficult to – I try to imagine myself in mid-1970 reading a book about Hollywood as a metaphor for American dread yeah, and a sense of something is on the horizon and not really knowing what apocalyptic forces are out there, but then knowing that Manson was on the horizon. You know, hindsight teaches us a lot about the sixties. I think you and I are both born in the sixties, but have no real memories. I have a vague memory of being woken up for the moon landing and <laughs> and seeing my parents watching Star Trek and seeing the Enterprise whoosh across the screen. And that's about <laughs> it for me from the sixties, other than a few, you know, little kid images and, and all that from like when I'm four and five or whatever. But looking back, it makes sense that you have all this this craziness because the nation had put itself under such outrageous pressure for twenty five years straight without dealing with problems. And, you know, it's like a boiling pot. So we've got World War One leading into the Depression, leading into World War Two, leading into Korea. And do we have to go to Korea? And we certainly don't really have to go to Vietnam. But a lot of people think we did. We have the Cold War. We have for the first time in history, the fact that mankind, that two nations can end most life and civilization on Earth as we know it by the end of the 60s. They're so powerful with the H-bomb, the A-bomb, and then the H-bomb. And so all this pressure, you know, we have all these civil rights problems. So let's just pretend it's not a problem. And, you know, right. we have all these problems with how gay people are treated. Let's pretend it's not a problem. We have problems with alcoholism and drug abuse. Let's just criminalize it and ignore it and not treat it as an illness. And so you, you put a lid on a boiling pot and it's going to boil over. And that is the 60s. And so on the one hand, you have one group of people saying it's all about free love and Love is all you need, and everything's going to be great, man, if you just 
if you, you smoke enough dope, everything's going to work out. Then you have another group of people say we need to bomb these people and kill these people. And once we get rid of all the old bastards we don't agree with, everything will work out. Not thinking that, you know, it won't be too many years before you're the old bastards. Yep. Where will, will, will the world be a lot different? And the answer is, given that these guys are the baby boomer generation, not so different. Not that Generation Xers like you and I can necessarily say, you know, a whole lot different one way or the other, or the millennials or anyone else. <laughs> Things seem to go as they go. It's just striking to me that the the major attitude from 1940 on, 45 on in fiction, is the idea of psychological stress or psychic breakdown to where you have all of these characters suffering from what the word that Updike gets from Kierkegaard, angst. Yeah. This notion of there's a, a sort of mental disease, a spiritual sickness that is plaguing us all in a time when we should be enjoying the greatest period of prosperity ever from 1946 to 1973. And to me, there's no greater indicator of the way that society sort of depicts the, the notion of, of angst or of psychic distress by the popularity of remedies that uh, everybody from Ginsburg to Kesey to to Sylvia Plath. And it's a big theme in the bell jar, which is what, Scott? Well, just the idea that you're dealing with all this stress and pressure and you're dealing with trying to be a young woman who's in charge of her sexuality and letting go of all these previous mores. And now they're saying just go with the flow. Just do what you're expected to do. Just be a beautiful young woman and everything will work out fine. And of course, right. Just like in this novel, the, the kind of sexual awakening doesn't come without consequences. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I think I like so much about what Didion does in this book and in the slouching towards Bethlehem collection is during the time when everyone else is looking through rose colored glasses at everything, she's very clear eyed about realities. And it may be she's just old enough to have a little more perspective to know where things are. It may be that because she's a journalist, that's what she's trained to do is look through where the seams meet and point out those unlikely welds to people where the structure perhaps won't hold, as as you were saying before, the center won't hold as we keep quoting Yates there. And but she's the person who in before the Manson murders are so completely well-known is already writing this thing's going to fall mm-hmm. apart this these people are, are yeah. lying to themselves about a lot of this stuff and i don't know that you could argue that something like the manson murders are the obvious byproduct of the hippie movement in the way that you would say lynching is an obvious byproduct of the jim crow era following a failed reconstruction following slavery but is definitely in the cards you know it they right. could have seen it coming. There's just too much craziness going on in certain ways. And people, the more they're searching for answers, the more gullible they seem to make themselves. And so I think that's one reason why we don't see Joan Didion and Mariah as being the same person is because this Mariah who just kind of allows herself to be yanked around a bit and is has yeah. these kind of passive resistances doesn't seem very Didion-like. No, maybe it is. And maybe who we think she is and who she really was at that point in time is closer to who Mariah is. But I tend to think she purposely decides to make Mariah not like herself, but like these other people. Well, maybe more like a Sharon Tate, like you were saying. 
Yeah, no, I agree completely. Uh, you know, I think that slouching toward Bethlehem ends with this horrific uh, vision of these uh, hippies that are giving a child acid. Yes. The other thing is that a lot of the hippies that she was interviewing were very cynical. It was about sexual predation, yeah. and it was about and it was about money. Yep. It was about making money off of these young kids that were looking for these drug experiences. Right. So, and I think that's the, to, to whatever degree anybody ever bought in the hippie dream, the whole mask of it was basically another justifiable way of excusing or legitimate, legitimating abuse and male sexual sort of privilege. Yeah, and opportunism is, is what you've put it yeah, before. Ex exactly. And so I think she is very deliberately adamant about that. There's a scene in played as it lays where she has a one night stand with a Hollywood actor. Right. And that's, there's nothing particularly unique about that scene. It's kind of what you would expect it to be. You know, the guy comes off like you would imagine, I don't want to name names, but one of those silent generation film stars yeah. that you can sort of imagine what they were like in the swing in sixties, you know, just absolute jerks. And, it, and it's even strange that she's kind of developed this crush on him in the first place. Like it seems forced, like mm -hmm. she's just doing it to prove that she doesn't have to like her husband that much. You yeah. said at the outset, it's not so much a Hollywood novels as portrayed as, but I think without completely disagreeing, I might push back and say, I think actually what you brought up about, it's also a Vegas novel gives us a kind of nice structure here, because if, if we're thinking of the history of the, Hollywood novel. And I don't know that there are a lot of great Hollywood novels. I think it might be there's more good Hollywood films than novels, mm -hmm. but the, the first great one is Miss Lonely Hearts, Nathaniel right. West, uh, which is really about just a screenwriter who's just yanked around and has harder and harder time and trying to make a living as a advice columnist and getting more and more depressive. And it does seem to be a book that's very similar to this in a lot of ways. Uh, not so yeah. much vignette-ridden, but equally bleak, equally dark. And then we have what is going on with Fitzgerald's uh, unfinished novel, The Last Tycoon, which is really kind of based on a powerful Hollywood producer and his his fictional version of that, who's kind of cool and then in charge, yet there's a little bit of a Gatsby-esque false, yeah. falsehood to his... And he's sure. running up against a system that is about to replace that sort of studio right. head with uh, the the money people, kind of like what is happening today in Hollywood, where you've got a lot of managerial egos coming in and, and just decimating the place in the name of stock. It's what's happening in academia, where yes, you have a lot true. of yes. business people who think the goal of colleges is to be profitable as nonprofits. Right. And want to measure monetary outcomes as opposed to uh, the various things we've always wanted students to learn upon graduating a four-year degree. We absolutely put Play It As It Lays in the category of the Hollywood novel. And that also includes everything from Bud Schulberg's What Makes Sammy Run, which came out in 1941, all the way up through The, the Player, which yeah. became more famous as a movie. But is a hilarious. Yeah, novel. who wrote that novel? I'm trying to. Oh gosh, is it I, Michael Michael Tolkien? Yes, okay. yes. Uh, <laughs> a great satire, 
talking about kind of the tropes of Hollywood uh, as they go around. And of course, the idea is the writer is the most worthless, worthless figure in Hollywood. Feels very dated today because it's 35 years right. old and the whole scene has changed. But I think that there's a tendency more recently. I was just going to say, I have a lot of um, problems with a lot of the movies from the middle part of Quentin Tarantino's career. But I did think his Hollywood film here here lately. Yeah. Once Upon a Time in Yeah, his Hollywood. Hollywood film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What I like most about it is it plays with all these cliches. And it plays, of course, with the apotheosis of the cliches and the Manson murders. And turns mm-hmm. it, gives that horrific story, spoiler alert, go ahead, th- two minutes if you haven't seen this movie, and plays with the uh, horrors of that story and the horrible way that it all ends for people and gives us instead a Hollywood ending. And literally yeah. the gates open and he's allowed access at the end, which is hilarious. A very, very regressive Hollywood vision yeah. of, uh, I mean, I've walked out of that theater and I love that movie. But I walked out of that ending and I thought this is the first time in my life I have ever I've ever had. I felt sorry for a Manson girl. Yeah. So, so, but very problematic. But that's that's good art. I, yeah. I feel like, you know, I don't necessarily want art that panders to my values or makes me feel good at the end. And maybe that's why this novel intrigues me. I think it is difficult to read it and not get swept away in the glamorization to not feel like it is possibly glamorizing on we yeah and i think that's why maybe one of the things to that that if if you only read one scene in this book i would recommend you read the abortion yeah. scene because that is as clinical and gut-wrenching of a depiction of what women had to go through before 1973 way more unsettling than the infamous uh, uh, gynecological visit in, um, in Mad Men from 15 years ago or so. So a lot of little set pieces in here uh, that the book touches on. Uh, you know, we have right away, I guess one of the things we probably ought to ask is what does the title mean? Well, and that's what I was getting back to when you brought up or when I brought up the Hollywood novel thing a little bit earlier, because I think when you said it's also a Vegas novel, and so much of it is also set in Nevada and Vegas. So Mariah's father was a gambler who always had the fortunes of the family way up and way down, way up and way down. So it wasn't just someone who tried to play, you know, the, the heavy tables in Vegas to make a steady living for his family. He's someone who would have great success, and wager it all away, and then later, from being a complete failure, bring money back in through doing it. And so when certain cards are dealt in your hand in poker or whatever else you're playing, you've got to play the cards you have. It's, you have to yeah. deal with the, the cards that fate hands out to you, and that's what it means. And so we do have in Mariah what you could say at first, and early on in the novel, seems to be a certain stoicism and toughness, mm-hmm. but more and more as the book goes on, it seems like that's not the case. It's really just a kind of abstracted, like she's cut off from feeling. She's takes so many, yeah. so many Valium and, and other drugs at the time that she's not able to really engage her feelings because she's undone by them. And, you know, one of the things that is so huge in the early part of the book and fades out and fades back in at different times 
is what's going on with her and Carter's daughter, Kate. And it, you yes. know, it reminds me a little bit of the Buchanan's daughter and the great Gatsby, who's appears in chapter one and disappears until chapter seven, more or less in the book. Mm-hmm. And in this case, Kate, she does want to get back to Kate. She's not allowed to go see Kate all the time. It bothers Kate when she comes. Do we ever have a clear understanding of what's going on with Kate? No, she is uh, institutionalized because she has some sort of brain issue. And it's clearly sort of based on their adopting this child, uh, Quintana, who spent her whole life kind of struggling with uh, both uh, health, mental and physical health issues. But I think what it does is it raises, I mean, Mariah is struggling at all times to to kind of get back to this notion of a, you know, just a basic domestic life. I mean, one of the striking passages in was when she talks about she's going to get Kate back and she's just going to can. Right. You know, she's going to do canning. Yeah. And it, it seems so far away from her life, you know, the abuse and the promiscuity and even some of the implied orgy scenes in here that that's even imaginable right. for her. You know, they made a movie out of this with Tuesday Weld and um, Anthony Perkins, which I've never seen. Did you, did you Have you seen it? I, I saw it years ago, and my memory of it is that it is nowhere near as good as the book. Yeah. In fact, I was listening to a podcast the other day. I hate to mention our competition, but there is a podcast called The Book Was Better, uh, hosted by a young lady named Kayla, and she goes into quite a bit about how different the movie is compared to the book and how inferior. And I think part of that is, again, that we lose sort of the interiority we have of Mariah's drift in here. This is a book in which she's basically struggling to get out of this malaise and to find something concrete in her life. And Hollywood is an interesting metaphor throughout the book because it's, you know, it's the land of images. It's the land of phoniness. To me, it's sort of interesting that, uh, you know, in this abusive relationship with Carter, she has been the star of two of his films, yeah. bo- both of which basically make her an icon, but without any sort of participation from her. The first is documentary that she doesn't even know he was making right. when she was a model uh, that he sort of pieces together, sort of reminds one of Andy Warhol and Edie Sedgwick. Yeah, and also Nico. Uh, the second one. Yeah, exactly. The second one seems to be all this kind of weird orgy stuff going on around yeah. her. And so playing with the, you know, one of the weird side effects, and this happened over and over again, but as one group tries to push forward censorship, and the other group tries to find out ways to push back. Sometimes the compromises they come up with create problems that the censorship group never, ever perceived of. So right, we had that Hayes production code in Hollywood, which was clearly laughable and horribly constricted things in movies. So they developed the movie ratings code and immediately it more or less seems to legalize pornography. Yeah. And you have, of course, now a multi-gazillion dollar industry that's shifted, I guess, out of the parts of California onto the internet. And there's some strange dark places on the internet for it now. But the same things happened with the television rating codes where suddenly there's a lot more fake sex, uh, really over-the-top violence and cursing 
than there ever used to be. Yeah. And the minute they had a rating system, they're allowed to do that. And so in the late 60s, when that new movie rating system came in, a lot of films are really willing to push these things to to a limit. And sometimes yeah. they're pretty successful, like uh, Midnight Cowboy. Other times they really were maybe not such great works of art like Last Tango in Paris. I, I think when you when readers read about the biker movie, yeah. their minds are automatically going to go to Easy Rider. But, you know, that movie was as, you know, sort of changing Hollywood as it was to bring in independence and open it up to the depiction of things. That's a fairly conventional movie in that it's a picaresque starring two guys on a quest. Right. And they're heroic figures, even though they're kind of sh- kind of goofballs. That's not the case in the movie Mariah stars in, when which she the the movie features her being gang raped, and again it's just sort of bizarre to think about a director. There's a sadomasochistic tone to a lot of the sex in this book. There's one scene where BZ and Helene kind of seduce Mariah, and even though there's not much description of what's going on, it's pretty clear that she's a sort of unwilling, almost narcotized. Right plaything for them. And again, my mind goes back to the way that uh, Roman Polanski was treating Sharon Tate as a sort of object yeah. uh, in the in the, the movie they did together about the vampire killers. Yeah. And, you know, this whole notion of you have this beautiful actress that you, you know, express your contempt upon for her beauty because of whatever issues you have as a director. I mean, it gets into, uh, it's a it's an interesting refutation of the whole auteur theory right. in here, because I just find, I, I find Carter just a pompous ass. Yeah, and what he seems to completely lack is empathy. Yep. And on the one hand, he wants her to tell him what she wants, and if she wants to really make a second go of it, just come forward and say so. And on the other hand, he's mad that she's always, you know, high or seems to get pulled into these various things going on yet he also later puts her in trying situations as a kind of unfeeling test to see if she'll kind of act the way he wants her to act and there's just Mm -hmm. never any any empathy there's never any compassion toward her and it's just you know and this is of course the significant problem of the novel you can feel compassion for helene a little bit and for a lot for mariah but you don't really have any character to hang your hat on. No. There's not one person in her life who seems to represent a kind of moral through line or a center of strength or yeah. or compassion or anything like that. And I think that's Didion saying that doesn't exist in Hollywood. Right. Although we might argue by writing this book and writing those essays, she's the person who is that person when she's... Yeah in that area. And of course she and her husband did work on a lot of screenplays together and her husband as a not as a producer as much as he is a kind of script doctor and screenplay writer and someone who adapts books um was involved and of course his older brother is very uh, involved in Hollywood throughout all this time and some of the questions people often have is Carter supposed to be a blend of the two Dunn brothers and two or three other people is it really more just is Dunn Carter, is his older brother Carter. And they all disagree, kind of depending who is writing about it. Yeah. And I think the ultimate answer is like any Ramana Clay is does the book hold up well 
if you knew nothing about who the writer was. Yeah, I uh, I almost wish I knew less about Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn reading reading the book because unlike The Sun Also Rises, which I find fascinating as a porthole into the real life people, you know, I don't I don't get that interest here. I mean, I don't have any desire to know who the real BZ was if he was right. based on a, a real person. And I think the characters are a little abstract in that sense. They're really being made to stand more for the muse figure, the director, creator, these different roles that people play right. in Hollywood. And the problem with that, when you go for the kind of allegorical rendering character and, and plot is you lose detail and and focus and you only make kind of clumsy large statements instead of smaller insightful statements. And so, you know, when we think of the, the kind of, if we had these young male novels of initiation, so we have, you know, the Huck Finn buildings Ramon being replaced by Catcher in a Rye, which is, again, about a young man who can't handle the pressures of modern growing up and becoming of age and is in psychiatric or psychological treatment at the end. The whole book is told post facto to his therapist or someone after he's recovered from all the problems. And then, of course, we have The Bell Jar, which is only published posthumously for Sylvia Plath. And you, you and I were saying before recording that I, I think it, it quite likely that had she lived Plath may have been better regarded in the long run as a novelist than she was as a poet. I think she had many ways kind of exhausted a lot of what she was up to in her poetry. There's a similarity to a lot of what she does. But it is a book that is very similar to this. And, of course, uh, one of the things that's kind of interesting, if you think about it, is she and Didion would have been working in Vogue and some of those magazines in that part of yeah. New York around us. Roughly the same age, which is sort of shocking yeah. to think about. Roughly, that, the, roughly the same time as well. You know, it's, yeah. And probably someone's written articles on this and reported, and we're neither one of us enough of a flat or Didion expert to say, oh, yes, of course they knew each other. <laughs> they were correspondents. And well, I don't know that, but there's a sameness to these books about someone who gets more and more under the pressure cooker of their lives and starts just falling apart and yeah. trying to self-medicate, trying to figure out a way to just abstract themselves from life. As we think about the book, if it's not about Hollywood, is it simply about one of the problems where you combine the things that are worst about, I'm going to, I'm going to draw you a three-way triangulation here, sixties hipster youth culture in Hollywood culture and Las Vegas gambler culture. All yeah. these things are built upon illusion and fantasy and the look and the style and not on anything solid. Right. Not on, for instance, canning vegetables so that you'll provide for the future. Not on building a family, not on having a, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So is this just a way of her saying over and over again, people have this way of, I mean, is that, when it's all said and done, what the book is actually about? Well, there's an interesting second motif or symbol in the book that is actually uh, sort of announced by the cover version or the original cover, which is of a rattlesnake, yes. a coiled rattlesnake. And the other thing that Mariah's grifter, con man, bad gambler father tells her, in addition to play the card you're dealt, is if you lift up a rock, you're likely to find a rattlesnake. Right. 
And I think the message of that is don't go looking or asking too many questions because you won't like what you find. It's a kind of there's evil in the garden. Right. And that's sort of what you're asking is, is there something about there is there a moral necessity to acknowledging evil in the world and i don't think that i think miranda is or excuse me mariah is working toward that toward having the power to acknowledge that because if we don't acknowledge it that's when we get caught up in the drift we just sort of float along and i can't say that i've ever been invited to too many orgies but my thought is is if i ever were i'd probably be sitting there thinking uh, the same this isn't my no. scene and getting out as quick as I can. But that's also, I think, reflects the fact that I know there's rattlesnakes right. and I know what happens when you get bit by a snake. Yeah. And uh, these characters seem in denial. Yeah, they seem to be juggling the serpents uh, themselves mm-hmm. without having any kind of charismatic faith to presumably see them through. And, of course, this brings back something that I've pointed out to you before. There's... One of the great songs off the first Lloyd Cole and the Commotions album back in sure. the early 80s is, you know, girl needs a gun these days to deal with all the rattlesnakes. And it's line of, <laughs> he looks like Eve Marie Saint and on the waterfront and she, you know, drives up and down the roads, all these things. Less than short, the come to stay in San Jose. And the never-born child still haunts her as she speeds down the freeway. So it's a definite reference to all that. And I do think that that is exactly what those rattlesnakes are doing here. They are reminding us there is this dark nature to humans where we do predate on each other and take advantage of the weak, the young, the sick, and all these ways. And if you don't have someone in your life who's willing to help you stand that off, you have to watch out for yourself. Yeah. And that is one of the problems is Mariah is someone who needs help and the people around her only see her as someone to use and not to help. Mm-hmm. And it, this, what's sad is at different times, you fool yourself into thinking, oh, well, Carter's problem is he doesn't like how into the lifestyle she's gotten and he's judging her. But maybe that means he'll be the steady rock. Nope, he's just a jerk. Oh, BZ. Yeah, yeah you know, he's having to um, kind of live in denial of who he is and all that kind of stuff. But still, he's her friend she can turn to. Nope, he's going to take advantage of her. He's going to get her droped up and use her as a plaything too, even though that's presumably not even something he's interested in. Helene is is kind of a shadow of her, and Helene seems to be saying, it's all I can do to watch out for myself. I certainly can't watch out for you either. Yeah, she's just, Helene, I think, is just bought into her role. And it's interesting because her monologue that comes, I believe, I can't remember if it's before or after Carter's, uh, at the beginning of the book, but you know, she just basically doesn't seem like she's learned anything out of this experience. She kind of resents the fact that after this crack up, that Mariah 
it's almost like, oh, she's privileged to be the sad girl because uh, she can just hang out at the pool and reflect. And by the way, she does, she's never gotten fat from all of this right. that she's dealt with. So there's a sort of superficial inability on her part to connect with anybody else in the novel either. Well, and it brings up a little, maybe there's another little subtle thread work through this. And it's something you and I were talking about before. And I think before we started recording, but you know, if you look at musicians in the sixties, they really, some of them were kind of really good looking and their career was based on how they looked on television and on film. And that would be, uh, you know, your lead people in the Beatles who had such a kind of, you know, you know, they all dressed the same way and they all had the same haircuts and you had Beatle mania and you have, various kind of beautiful women but you also had for every one of those you had the mamas and the papas and you had uh, where you had one beautiful person and three not beautiful people and right, you had right. oh the one who covered chris christopherson songs um janice joplin and you have other people who were not particularly anyone that would fit a standard hollywood television definition of pretty or beautiful have very successful careers and i would say that music was changed forever in the 80s by MTV and the whole notion of video. And it became in a way that had always been maybe part of what went on as we see with the Elvis, we see with Little Richard, we see with, you know, the Beatles, but it became one of the most dominating, most significant, important things going on in popular music. And not just the music, but the look and the performance were so significant. And that's why, yeah. that's why independent music took such a wide break away by the end of the 70s and the early 80s because they want to say no it's about the passion and the music not about mm -hmm. the other things and now eventually nirvana kind of brings it all back together you know yeah but it's also about the image and how it looks and da 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 and so with with all that stated i think some of that has at different times happened in fiction sure. and faulkner doesn't get published or stay published because anyone thinks he's a matinee idol but in the early days of his career, Hemingway struck a fairly striking figure as a wounded, mm -hmm. not truly a veteran, but a wounded Red Cross member from World War One. And Scribner's as as Bruckley and Robert Trogdon, your co-host on your other podcast, have done a great job pointing out Scribner's used him every way they could to get the word out and use him as a kind of sure. figure. And I think maybe they're to blame for the kind of eventual Lindsay Lohanning of of Hemingway <laughs> to to coin a term she may feel she was Hemingway yeah. instead and then how many novels now when you open the back cover or take down the hardback in the bookstores if the writer is remotely attractive there's a huge picture of them now you don't yeah. have the little tiny thumbnail sized picture of someone now you have just over and over again these very attractive writers and so suddenly the image becomes really significant so Joan Didion I think one of the things she may be pointing, of course, when she breaks in, one of the reasons she has access to these different kind of previously mostly male groups and societies is she's very attractive. And she's not necessarily a threat to those people because she knows how to play the game right. with the male egos. Yeah. You know, just as recently as when she passed away, you could buy the poster and the T-shirt and the shopping bag of, I mean, there were... Joan Didion lines of consumer goods that you could purchase. And I can't think of another living writer, not even Stephen King, nope. where you had that. It was all very much about her coolness 
And that's a word that was really sort of, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, sort of became an albatross for right. her. But, you know, most, most of the pictures of that swag was all from her in a mini dress standing in front of a Corvette and things like yep. that. Very, yep, exactly. very little of it was, you talked about what a great third act she had, you know, mm-hmm. defying Fitzgerald's statement, there are no second acts in American lives. <laughs> and she's in act three and successful and is quite a, I think you could say role model for what she does then and there. And that's not the yeah. picture anyone's showing. You know, yeah. it's always a picture of the 32 year old cool chick and, you know, the California desert with the hot rod that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's one of the things she's pointing out too. this stuff that Carter BZ Helene. And in fact, they have the other friend whose career is kind of up and down. And some of the other people in the peripheral of the novel is if so-and-so's gained too much weight or has had too many other problems. And so that yeah. all the, everyone's judgments is simply based on what's your trajectory like in this thin little questionable career of the, of the Hollywood and modeling scene. And we do see how her agent now that she's in her early thirties and is acting weird, starts kind of giving her to heave ho a little bit. She's, I think she's calling all that into, into question as well. Nope. I agree completely. So let's talk about whether or not, and I think there's probably one big question we have to ask with the novel whether it's a great American novel. It's certainly American, and it's about an American theme and idea with the whole youth culture, Hollywood culture, hipster culture, all those different things. This is less about hipster culture, more about just a kind of, I don't know, moral decay of the end of the 60s, but sufficient heft, scope, and depth and durability showing us significant aesthetic value. Where Where do you land on it, Kurt? So I would, I, I will just say, I, I love this novel. I think uh, I, I love Joan Didion for all of those reasons we just talked about. I would totally put up a picture of her with the Corvette. I think it falls just shy of being a great American novel. And I don't think it's her fault. 1962, Philip Roth said, you can't write a good satirical fiction in America because reality will quickly huh. outdo anything you invent. And I think that, again, the very fact that this novel goes from the writing to the copy editing to the publication in that period that we have the Manson murders, there is no greater metaphor for Hollywood, for rock music, for Los Angeles as a symbolic end of the 1960s than that event. And, you know, even 40 years later, when Thomas Pynchon is writing about that in uh, Inherent Vice, it very much has the appeal because it, it is a shock that we don't think of youth culture killing its own right. in this regard. And the paranoia that was palpable uh, as a result of that, both in the film and the music communities. So I think it's a case where history sort of overwhelms the novel in a way. And just given a choice between... T- be reading or teaching this novel and and the essays i will always go with slouching toward bethlehem yeah. and the white album is a bookend of the of the 60s experience you know not this past summer Corinne mccarthy died and i did on my other podcast i do the reading mccarthy one we did a few tribute episodes and i had a couple panels and then some people who read little things they had they had published about him and one of the people I had on who's this extraordinary McCarthy 
critic. Um, Diane Luce said he's a great man of letters, but I don't think he really was. I think he was a great novelist. But when I hear man mm-hmm. of letters or writer of letters or person of letters, what I'm really thinking of in those circumstances is someone who writes in multiple genres and multiple ways. So John Updike is writing essays and novels and poetry and very successfully on all three fronts. That's a man of letters. Yeah. By the same token, we have other other writers over the years who've published a whole lot of nonfiction in different places or poetry in different places. Someone who's, you know, T.S. Eliot, who's a significant poet, a very significant critic, a eh, playwright, you'd still say a great writer of letters. And that's what I yeah. put Didion in, who's done probably unheralded or never credited for the various amount of screenplay writing she did. But in addition to that, significant, very important, very good novels like this, which is maybe just shy of the mark of the great American novel. Right. And then significant, great nonfiction, mostly in shorter pieces. And then the one, and even the white album, the the book, it's got so many vignettes that were published mm-hmm. separately that though I know better, yeah. I always think of it as a collection, although it's, it's presumably not. Yeah. And most people just talk about the title, the title essay. Yeah. The other thing I would say is I think it's very difficult to write a book about nihilism, yeah. about placidity, about the drift, and make it a great American novel because the great American novel has this idea of agency. You're trying to forge or create or go out into the world. And this novel, there's a lot of motion in this novel, but we have what critics call freeway existentialism. Yeah. There's a lot of driving around, but it's a lot of wasted emotion. It's not a search. No. It's a struggle for an escape. And so maybe that's one of the contrasts that I would pose between this book and, say, Kerouac's On the Road. You know, you're you're getting on the road to go find something, and there's an exhilaration and excitement right. going out there. And this one, it feels like you're taking a downer. Yeah, or another contrast might be it's a few years older than this. The well, two different books, but the Movie Goer or The Last Gentleman by Walker Percy, yeah. which are about these characters who feel isolated and cut off from modern life. Now, in, in Percy's case, he's doing straight Kierkegaardian, you know, Catholic right. Catholic existentialism, really. But he's putting it in this modern context in a way that obscures it, it makes it really interesting and engaging. With kind of, yeah. there's a lot of wit and fun along with the kind of nihilism that they're trying to overcome. And I think if you read the moviegoer, you you keep sitting there thinking, how is this guy adrift? Yeah. He seems <laughs> he seems perfectly well adjusted. Yeah. But it's a spiritual sickness as opposed to, you know, the moral, the morass of amorality in the 60s, I yeah, guess. Yeah, absolutely. And to be sure, his book is, is set more in like the 50s New Orleans, and it's not dealing with right. the kind of world that – even at that point in probably 61 or 62 Louisiana, what you would have in California by 1970 is probably almost unthinkable to someone like Walker Percy, who's of the yeah. World War II generation. So ultimately, Joan Didion is a great American writer, but this is not necessarily a great American novel. No, and I and I, again, when we say that, this is not to discourage anybody from reading these books. I think it's a great experience, but you know, it just doesn't capture, I think, the initiative that we want to see in journeys right. or some sort of flaming out of, of willpower right. 
that uh, we celebrate as the uh, sort of the essence of the democratic spirit, even if it's even if it's a failure in the end. I mean, we, you know, you you put Mariah next to Jay Gatsby, yeah, and uh, it just doesn't seem like Mariah's ever going to get off the couch. Well, and it lacks enough depth of character in the other characters to achieve uh, tragedy. Yeah. We sympathize so much with Mariah, but that's really because she's our point of view character and mm-hmm. not so much just because we're compelled to by the narrative. And there's no one else that we have any regard for at all in the book. Yeah. Kirk, you have a new canon fodder novel. Do you want to throw it up? Well, I think it's, yeah, you and I were both talking and I think you, you should give the one you suggested too, because I think it's an interesting uh, sort of latter day analog to play it as it lays. But for me, this book is very difficult to think of without thinking about Valley of the Dolls by Jacqueline <laughs> Suzanne. And I mean, that's a camp novel, but it's also very much of this same era dealing with many of these same themes. And it's the difference between sort of pop culture exploitation and, and literary moralizing. I think if you get into Valley of the Dolls, you there's just no sense that there's really anything wrong with this scene for everything that goes bad. It's very clear that this is just sort of being exploited in order to uh, sort of shock and titillate and make people want to read it. I think it's the virtue of Didion is she resists camp. There is absolutely nothing about her in all of the absurdity that she is depicting of this late 60s world, there's nothing that sort of seems sort of kitschy about it. Right. It is morally, it it's blank, but it's also terrifying. And more recently, the book I thought of, and, and it's funny because, you know, Kirk, this summer we just went through, you could call the summer of Barbie, in that we mm-hmm. had Mattel toys tried to find a way to advertise their toys and realize that they couldn't really do it with the toy stores anymore because the toy stores are practically out of business and people buy so much stuff through the online retailers now. And so they decided, let's go Hollywood. And somehow they got Margot Robbie interested in it. And then somehow or another, she got Greta Gerwig. And so they turned the Barbie movie into a feminist manifesto. And I find that relatively interesting coming as it does, given where things have been politically and given, again, we're talking about a novel where a bit more of a kind of feminist one-two punch from Mariah might have been something that elevated the book or changed it a little bit. And the other thing is, of course, in the last couple of years, there have been a few novels or last several years have been a few novels about kind of different rock and roll and Hollywood stardom. There've been all these TV shows and movies. We talked previously one time about how Amazon adapted a novel, um, Daisy Jones and the six, which is mm-hmm. you know mostly fiction, but a little bit based on that weird back and forth charisma, anti-charisma you have in chemistry and anti-chemistry you have by Fleetwood Mac. So Jennifer Egan, I think got there first with her 2011 novel, a visit from the goon squad. And it is very much told like William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying from all these different perspectives by people who are caught up in the music industry and the development of a couple of stars and and, and a band and all that. And just how things kind of people have these opportunities to fall off the cliff or to survive. 
And one of the things, and she developed several characters that you can be invested in and engaged in, and several characters who push back against nihilism, push back against giving up. And so it's very much kind of like doing what this novel, what plays it lays, does and saying, well, that's one way to do it. Here's another way to do it. And of course, later she would do a sequel that it's very kind of hard to see how much it's a sequel in some ways. And I think she just came out with the third sequel. (laughs) But that would be my cannon fodder. I, I love that book, Visit from the Goon Squad. I think it's very interesting in what it does with uh, literary form. Yeah. Some people classify it as a short story cycle instead of a uh, a novel, but she claims that her way of organizing the book was to think of it as a concept album. Yeah. And she's specifically talking about some of those late 60s, early 70s, you know, albums that, that you listened to that told a story, but they weren't all disconnected. Right. I guess my only frustration with that book is it feels like, I, I mean, there's there's not a necessarily a character in that book that I really care about in the, I don't even want to try to care about in the way that I want to try to care about Mariah. And I don't know why that is. Right. I almost feel like there's a little bit of a, I hate to say condescension, but a little bit of an eye rolling about rock and roll in that book with all the talk about, you know, what punk rock was supposed to be right. and all of this. I always, I always think of the chapter where the, uh, the guy that, used to make Iggy Pop look passive on stage, gets fat, and he's going to kill himself on stage trying to mimic who he used to be. And to me, that just is like, you know, it it just seems almost like she didn't like the stuff she was writing about. And I don't get that sense with the movies. I I don't think Didion, you know, that's maybe one of the other things we could say about this book is she doesn't really ever talk about the appeal of movies or the fantasy that movies are supposed to sell us in the way that Fitzgerald or even the player do. And, and it almost feels like this could be a, a book about, uh, you know, fashion models yeah. or hell it, could be a book about PTA members. It could, it or could something. be about professional baseball. It could be about, yeah. about anything really where, where the human person becomes more of a commodity than, sure an actual full breathing human and then the question becomes are you going to participate in that commodification or struggle against it and i think mariah does both and maybe that's the kind of i don't know the axis that grinds her up a bit here well our next novel is going to be we are going to do uh this is going to be quite a 90 degree turn but we are going to do henry james the Portrait of a Lady. We were sort of struck by the fact that we hadn't done any Henry James yet. And not all that was by accident, but we are we both know <laughs> this novel well, and, and we'll, we'll do the best we can for you. So that'll be, for those of you who like to play along at home, and I, I don't really think anyone does, but if you do, that's where we're headed next. So thank you again for listening to the Great American Novel Podcast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're so inclined, it would be helpful if you could leave us a favorable review. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you may enjoy others, such as Master of 40 with Kirk and Robert Trogdon, focusing on the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Reading McCarthy with myself and guests about the works of Cormac McCarthy.
And please remember, you can always email us at greatamericannovelpodcast at gmail.com. We do feel fortunate that we've had uh, some emails lately, uh, very very nice and friendly emails, lots of suggestions that we are taking into consideration. So it is nice to know that we are being able to connect with folks, and we really do love hearing opinions about what you think is a great American novel. So we thank you for listening. We thank you, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.